You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Um, as you know, we are in the book of Acts, and as you can also tell by by the length of the passage, there's a there's just a ton to cover this morning. Um, that actually, you know, if I'm being honest, like there there are multiple sermons from Peter's Pentecost sermon, right? Um, I did I did wrestle if I should preach numerous sermons from this passage. Um, I, I decided to keep the entire passage together because of this like overarching emphasis seen throughout the passage. I, if you didn't notice, I'm going I'm to tell you here in a minute what this overarching emphasis, emphasis is. Um, in response to what was done and seen at Pentecost, Peter delivers like this, this robust defense of the work of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like that, that's his thrust behind his Pentecost sermon. What we see in Acts 2, you know, verses 14 going all the way to verse 41 as we read, is Peter understanding current events through a biblical lens, right? So like last week, we're talking about, you know, tongues of fire on people's head and people speaking in tongues and what do you do with that, right? So I, I, I made mention of this biblical lens last week and I really want to hammer home the point this morning. So here is the point, right? If you, all up there, sitting there listening to me and reading God's Word, if you're going to maximize your Bible reading, if you're going to understand God's Word, if you truly want to grasp all of the Scriptures, then you must see Christ in God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament. Let me say it differently, and perhaps with provocative flair. You cannot fully grasp the redemptive plan of God if you do not understand that Jesus is the focal point. He is the center of the entire Bible. I would imagine if I would like put that on Twitter, um, that you can't understand the Bible if Jesus isn't the focal point. I could receive some you know, like Twitter hate from the folks who try to make Israel the focal point of the Old Testament, right? Uh, in the 19th century in London, England, Pastor Charles Spurgeon uh, was said to have this like interaction with a, a young man after he preached God's word. So kind of, here's the scene. Young man preaches, and like Charles Spurgeon's listening to him, and, and this young man's like, give, give me some feedback. And, and Spurgeon said this, and here's a bit of the interaction. If I must tell you, <laughs> I did not like it at all. I can imagine it's like as a young man, uh, oh, I'm glad I asked, right? I didn't like it at all. And Spurgeon continues, there was no Christ in your sermon. To which the young man responded, no, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. And then Spurgeon responds, oh, but do you not know? That from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, 
there is a road from here to Jesus Christ. And I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Now you'd think that be the end of the conversation. But the young man responds and says, well, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. It's like this young man just, he just doesn't understand which Spurgeon says, then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get at him. Spurgeon is taking his cue, I think, in part from the Apostle Peter and other New Testament writers. Peter understood this when he preached his Pentecost sermon. The illuminating power of the Holy Spirit began to show Peter that the entire story of the Bible is about Jesus and God's redemptive plan to see his elect people saved for the honor and glory of his name. So, while we are reading from Acts this morning, the primary lesson for us is to know how, along with the New Testament writers, how to read the Old Testament. Again, I am preaching from this perspective so that you, when you out there come to the Bible, when you like open up the Word of God in devotion, or you come here on a Sunday morning, or we go into our community groups and we open the Scriptures together, together I want you to be an effective Bible reader. And there, there is a reason why I am approaching this text from this angle. Throughout my years as a Christian, and um, not as many years as a pastor, I do realize there is at times um, uncertainty or confusion about how to read the Old Testament, right? You get to Leviticus and you just got the law. What do you do with that, right? We get into uh, the prophetic books and some things are just repeated over and over again or it seems that way. Like, what do you do with that? You get to the Psalms and we're talking about poetry. What do you do with that? How do we read? How do we read that? Uh, for Christians, um, there is some, I think, confusion about how to read the Old Testament. While the New Testament seems reasonably, you know, straightforward, maybe aside from Revelation, However, coming to a proper interpretation of the Old Testament um, can be a bit elusive, and I want to try to make that within reach for you this morning. As you read the Bible, I want you to identify the fingerprints of Christ in every Old Testament book, chapter, and verse. Peter's Pentecost sermon helps us to that end. First, let's remember why, deli uh, why uh, Peter delivers his long but impactful sermon. Uh, the cliffhanger from last week is verses uh, 12 and 13. After the mysterious and miraculous events of you know, the wind and the tongues of fire and people speaking in a language that they had never once known, Luke records, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Like, what does this mean? What, what, do, we, what do we do with the tongues of fire, Right? Like, it's a, probably an honest question. I'm sure if I was in that in their position, I would ask the same, same thing. What do we do with this? I've never seen this before, right? And that's one, one response. It was another response. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They got drunk last night. They didn't stop drinking. And so they're just hammered. So that was kind of the cliffhanger from last week in which Peter responds this week. Men of Judea 
and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And that verse, verse 14, is a very common language in terms of trying to get people's attention when a big speech is coming. Give ear to my words, Peter says. So listen up. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Let's call it nine o'clock. Like, what he's basically saying is, your, your mocking is ridiculous. Look around. Nobody here is drunk. So it has to be something else, right? So Peter's response is truly remarkable. You know, let's take a moment. Just focus on Peter for a moment. Um, consider the transformation that took place with Peter in like only 50 days, right? So we have this, this magnificent speech. But let's, let's go backwards a little bit. On the day Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Peter also betrayed Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we read when Jesus was seized and taken to the high priest's house. Peter followed the action like from a distance. He's like, well, they took Jesus and I want to follow him, but I don't want to get too close. As Jesus underwent interrogation in the home of the high priest, Peter endured like the verbal interrogation of the people outside of the home of the high priest. And three times, as the Lord predicted, three times Peter denied Jesus because of fear for his life. While his friend, master, and teacher was getting unjustly whooped, Peter only was only concerned for himself. So the question is, what changed? right? What changed? How is it that a person can go from denying Jesus three times to boldly living for Jesus, right? Answer's really clear. When a person repents of sin and by faith believes Jesus is the Son of God who can forgive sins and grant eternal life, we can know that the Holy Spirit is alive and active, and when the Holy Spirit is alive and active in a person, Jesus, that, his, that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the message becomes the center of, of life. It becomes the center of everything. Pentecost not only spoke to this new covenant era we find ourselves in, but it also shows how the Holy Spirit changes a man from being a coward to courageous. When the Holy Spirit takes hold of a cold, dead heart and breathes faith onto the heart, a person goes from denying Jesus to adoring Jesus. What we have at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit taking the truth Peter knew in his mind and making that truth alive in his heart. And the result? A life in service to his Savior. The, the Holy Spirit not only illuminated to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, but God, the Holy Spirit, illuminated to Peter, get this, how to read his Old Testament. What Jesus knows about the Old Testament, Peter now knows. It's like everything began to click for Peter. You know, where there was uncertainty and, you know, denying Jesus, unbelief, right? Came like courage. And I was looking at the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and saying, wow, I see it now. The puzzle pieces were like coming together. You ever put a puzzle together and it's like all the pieces were coming together for Peter. And Peter's 
Pentecost sermon illustrates the radical change that took place in his life and in the life of a bunch of other people as well. Peter's Pentecost sermon is beautiful. It's biblical and bold. Preachers and any uh, student of the Bible can learn a lot from this sermon. The, the goal of Peter in this sermon is at least twofold, and at least that's the way I'm going to uh, explain it and show you today. First, to explain what just happened at Pentecost. That, that's one of the objectives Peter kind of lays out. What just happened, I need to explain it. Uh, the second is to show how the Old Testament reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ. All this I've already alluded to, and I'm just making it explicitly clear. Peter's goal is our goal this morning. So now let's take a, a closer look here. To make sense of the, of the spirit and the wind and the fire in the upper room, uh, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. You already heard it, but it's worth reading again. At least let's read that first half of, from, the, uh, from the prophet Joel. And in these last days, I'm going to explain last days here in a moment, it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall, here it is again, prophesy. So Peter's quotation of Joel constitutes the first half of Peter's sermon. The primary point Peter is making is that we are in these like last days, verse 17, and it's again alluded to in verse 20. Many Old Testament prophetic books are latent with this last days language. So if you get to like to the minor prophets, you call them also call them the book of the twelve. You just kind of flip through and they're talking about the last days all the time. All the time. When many of the prophets preached judgment and change to Israel, the last days were often in, in view. Peter picks up on this and associates the last days, this last days motif, with what happened at Pentecost. The pouring out of the Spirit has helped to usher in these last days, which we find ourselves in as a church. Now, the question is, how long did these last days last, right? Well, until Jesus returns, we are in the last days. Even the language in verses uh, 19 to 20 is reminiscent of what we read in the book of Revelation, right? The last of the last days. Apocalyptic language is oftentimes used to describe last days. So you kind of see how the second half of the prophet Joel, at least that quote that Peter uses from the prophet Joel, is very similar to the type of language in literature that we see in Revelation. Apocalyptic language is used to describe the last days. And in these last days, God is doing something new and unique. But while it is new and unique, it should not be a surprise. We shouldn't be like, whoa, where'd this come from, right? As I said last week, and what the prophet Joel confirms is that Pentecost has always been a part of God's redemptive plan. Notice a few details of God's redemptive plan. The Spirit which was just for a few elite people uh, of Israel in the Old Testament, is now poured out to sons, daughters, old men, young men, male servants, and female servants in these last days. Twice this prophetic statement from Joel says, and I will pour out my spirit. 
If Joel's prophetic word is real, does this mean that the Holy Spirit is not or was not poured out in the Old Testament? Like, I think that's a, a fine question to ask, right? Like, we have this language of pouring out, pouring out, and then all throughout the book of Acts, people are being filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with the Old Testament? Well, the Holy Spirit was definitely alive, albeit differently. Uh, here are a, uh, a few simple word pictures to help illustrate the difference between um, how the Holy Spirit functioned in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament. Uh, for, for a moment, imagine two empty glasses in front of you, right? Two empty glasses right in front of you. Um, both glasses are going to be filled with water. The first glass is filled, let's say, make it an eighth, eighth full of water. Not a lot of water, but you know there's water actually in the glass, then the second glass is not only filled to the top, but water is like overflowing. It's coming out of the top and down the outside of the glass and onto the table. This is a simple word picture that, hope, that I hope help makes the point. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was active, but in God's plan, He limited the Spirit by choice. In these last days, the Holy Spirit is, is overflowing, though. Uh, if that doesn't work for you, uh, consider what it's like when you uh, turn on your outdoor hose. Like, let's say you're at home and you got to go water uh, the garden, and you turn on the out outdoor hose. You go to the spigot located at the exterior of your house, give it a turn, and water begins to flow. This kind of flow of water is different than the flow of water that comes like from a fire hydrant, right? You open up that fire hydrant, and water is gushing out. To the point where, like, you just you just don't know what to do with it. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of water. There's no mistake that the water is flowing, f like, fast and, and furious. During the time of the Old Testament, the Spirit was flowing like the garden hose. It was going. It was at work. Um, now, in these last days, the Spirit's flowing and being poured out, kind of like a fire hydrant. Hope those word pictures kind of help you... Uh, like read your Old Testament and New Testament and the work of the God, the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures and throughout um, history, right? And notice um, how, as was um, spoken by the prophet Joel, how the Holy Spirit manifests itself in these last days through uh, the prophetic and through dreams. You know, it, it is passages like this which cause me to be a continuationist. That's kind of like a, a footnote to, to the whole point of the sermon. But again, here we see it. And don't forget, the spiritual gifts are not for a specific demographic, right? That, that's the thing. Like, the Spirit's being poured out to all, and the gifts are for all, right? As God determines. Therefore, the young and old, male and female, rich and poor, these gifts are, are for all who have the Spirit shed upon their heart by faith. The point being made is that the Holy Spirit is now, like I just said, for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit comes, the gifts of the Spirit come. The presence of God and the gifts are not limited for a select few Christ followers. We saw this last week when divided tongues were on the top of each person's head. The same point is being made here with a quotation from Joel 2. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit is for all people. And to boot, in verse 21, Peter gave the gospel call first spoken by 
Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> God's redemptive plan is revealed throughout all of Scripture, and Joel's pointing it out in verse 32 of chapter 2, and Peter points it out here in uh, Acts 2, verse 21. I said earlier that Peter's Pentecost sermon is beautiful. It's beautiful because of God. Peter shows us God and his plan from the Old Testament and from the prophet Joel. Now, I do think we need to step back for a moment and ask a question intended to help you read your Bible. Uh, let's say you read Joel 2, like you're in your devotions and you're just you're trucking along, you're in the Minor Prophets, and you get to Joel 2, right? And you read that independent of what Peter says in Acts 2. So the, the question is, isn't Joel speaking prophetically to his like immediate context? Like The prophet Joel wasn't hanging out with Peter in Acts 2. He had a completely different context well before Peter was ever born. So isn't Joel speaking to his immediate context? If yes, which I think that is true, then how can Peter and we take Joel 2 out of that immediate context and apply it to Pentecost? How can Peter do that? And how can we have, how can we have confidence that Peter can do that? After all, these words during the time of Joel seem to fit the historical context if you're reading like the book of Joel. I have several um, Bible reading tips to help you read this passage and other Old Testament passages. Uh, one, I think it's really helpful when you come to passages like Joel 2 to remember the primary storyline of the Bible. So from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about God's redemptive plan. I've said it already, to see his elect people saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Like Genesis 1-1, right? And then we take it all the way to Revelation. It's all about God's plan to save his people through Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything we read in the Old Testament, fits into that storyline. Um, here's what I mean. Have you ever been in a, like a conversation with one other person, and then like all of a sudden like a third person uh, approaches and tries to enter the conversation? You, you, you know, if you're mingling uh, with a bunch of people at your house, happens all the time, right? Pe two people are talking, another person enters. W what often happens um, is that without the greater context of the conversation, the third person might have no idea what the conversation is really about. What the third person heard isn't any less true, but the all overall context from the beginning to the end drives the meaning of what is said. If you want to understand snippets or passages of the Bible, you need to understand the more significant storyline of the Bible. Just take a modern novel, for example, right? Um, you just pick it up and you, it's got, say it's got like 50 chapters and you jump into chapter 25. Well, you're missing the first 24 chapters, which inform chapter 25. So get out of 24 and maybe go back to chapter 1 and understand the entire storyline so that you can understand better chapter 25. Uh, number two, with the greater narrative in view, um, the greater storyline in view, a passage like Joel 2 can be applied to Pentecost while 
also being true for Joel's immediate context. We will see more, more of this in a m- moment, especially when Peter starts quoting the Psalms. But here is the principle, and then we can see how it's applied. Uh, so another example. For a moment, let's say you witness like a robbery. Like let's say is it, you're just hanging out, you know, and all of a sudden there's a robbery at the grocery store, and, you, and, you're, and you see it all. And like a good citizen, you go and you go tell the police, and, uh, you know, you give them a statement. Well, if the police are doing their jobs well, uh, they're going to look for additional witnesses. Now, it is possible that another person gives who gives a statement, um, it can be different from yours. Both statements can be true, even though the statements come from a different perspective, and they have some similarities, but also some differences. Uh, sometimes you can see things a little differently, although it can still be true. Um, Likewise, we can take Joel's prophetic statement and apply it to his immediate context and the future events at Pentecost. Uh, Both are still true. And And I think it's worth saying that Joel, being a prophet, could have known that his words had ramifications well beyond his immediate context. And I think that language that we already talked about last days is an indicator of that. So third tip for reading um, passages in the Old Testament, keep this in mind. While the Old Testament helps us to make sense of the New Testament, the New Testament helps us to make sense of the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. Don't read either Testament or any book of the Bible independent from each other. Like too often... Christians disconnect the old from the new. Don't do this. I'm telling you right now, really bad theology has been created when someone is trying to disconnect the Old Testament from the new. Like it's like the story. There's no storyline that connects the two. It's like the Old Testament's all about Israel, and the New Testament's all about the church. Really bad theology has been created when both testaments have been disconnected from each other. Keep them together. Here's one final point about what to keep in mind when you read your Bible. God the Holy Spirit inspired Joel and Peter. The Holy Spirit has always been active in the writing of God's Word. So it makes sense that we can see Christ and God's redemptive plan all over the Bible because the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to reveal Christ and God's redemptive plan. I mean, that's what, that's what happened when you, Christian, were saved. The Holy Spirit revealed Christ and God's plan to your heart, and you were saved, right? So, too, is the entire story of the line of the Bible and the activity of the Holy Spirit in the writing of God's Word. Holy Spirit is helping to, has helped to write that and show Christ and show God's redemptive plan. So, it's a fourth and, at least for right now, final tip to in mind as you read your Old Testament. Peter's use of the Old Testament does not end with the prophet Joel. Peter adds an additional appeal by saying the great King David spoke about Jesus. This is just awesome. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, like who's the him? Concerning Jesus. That's that's huge. David spoke about Jesus. And then in verse 31, Peter says again, 
he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. I mean, that's just crazy. But it's true. Peter is convinced that David spoke about Jesus Christ. How could this be? Well, apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit, David would have had no idea. But God was with him. And David knew God's redemptive plan was higher than his earthly kingship. What's really clear when you read the Psalms that David's not naive, that God is up to something. David knew that God's redemptive plan did not stop with his physical death, but there was going to be someone greater than he who would redeem God's people. Verse 27, which quotes Psalm 16, is kind of the key that turns the lock for David and Peter. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Hopefully your translation of the Bible um, capitalizes the H and the O and Holy One. Those are good indicators. Uh, in the Greek word for Hades, it means the grave. Peter, Peter quotes Psalm 16 and says, David spoke about one who would not die. He spoke of one who would not be abandoned or seek corruption. What, what is interesting is that David did die. Think about that. Because of sin, David was corrupt. And David knew it. So certainly, David was not speaking about himself. Peter makes this point clear in verses uh, 29 to 31. Peter says, like, he's paraphrasing here, Ah, David did die, guys. You know, as a matter of fact, we can locate his grave. Like, we know where it's at. And I get it, y'all love David. I love David, too. But he was just a man. And his physical death should tell you that he was just a man. He was just a dude. But he was a, a man, a dude who was used by God to speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 31. So Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter recognized the messianic overtones all over Psalm 16. Here, here, here's what David knew in part. Devil killed Jesus, but he couldn't hold him down. Our sin nailed Jesus to the cross, but his love for his elect people was greater, and so Jesus rose from the grave. All of this according to the definite plan of God revealed in the Old Testament. David knew it. And that's what that's part of Peter's point here. David saw it. Now I want you to see it. To further advance his point, Peter also refers to Psalm 132, uh, verse 11. It's not a direct quote, but Peter's appeal to Psalm 132, verse 11 um, helps his hearers to see God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament. Peter says, and being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his one of David's descendants on his throne. In other words, the family line of David was going to continue, right? We, we, already, we already talked about how you know, David died. 
We can locate his grave. But his family line was going to continue. The line of David would see another who would be an eternal king. Peter, Peter's sermon is brilliant. He, here's the connection he's trying to make between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the messianic line of David. This is what a commentator said. Only one has ever conquered the grave. So David must have foreseen the resurrection of the Messiah. Jesus' resurrection links him to David's prophecy. It follows that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like Peter, you know, those big black permanent markers. It's like Peter grabs one of those and makes a direct line between the two thoughts. The resurrection of Jesus Jesus Christ and the eternal line of King David line. And then when he's preaching, it's like, if you didn't know the connection, you know it now. Here's one more connection being made by Peter. Again, he's got that permanent marker still in his hand. Trying to make it really clear. This connection is from Psalm 110, verse 1. One of the more uh, often quoted psalms in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So by quoting Psalm 110, Peter speaks to the exaltation of, of Jesus Christ. Once again, Peter's trying to show that David could not have been talking about himself. He was a mortal man who died, so he could not have been the one sitting at the right hand of God. But Jesus is eternal and defeated death, so he is the one reigning over all creation and over his enemies. Remarkable what Peter's, Peter has done here. Truly Truly remarkable. So, the Old Testament is about Jesus. Now what? What's the point of me getting up here and telling you the Old Testament is about Jesus? There's got to be more than a few Bible reading tips to the sermon. Although that is, I think, helpful. But there's got to be more, right? I think there is. Peter reads Jesus in the Old Testament so that he can share the gospel. With gospel-born boldness, born because of the Holy Spirit, Peter gets straight to the point. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So let there be no doubt about Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So what is the response to Jesus being the uh, focal point of the Old Testament? Like, how do you respond to that? You know, Peter doesn't leave his listeners or us just kind of hanging. What is the answer to Jesus, the Son of God? How should we respond? Verse 37 tells all. Listen, this is, a, this is amazing. Now, when they heard this, when they heard Jesus in the Old Testament, when they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Look at what is happening. 
through the preaching of the Bible, the gospel is being proclaimed. And the Holy Spirit was taking the words of Peter and using them to cut his listeners to the heart. Like, this is what we're going to see as we continue on in the book of Acts. As the word of God is preached, people are cut to the heart, churches are formed, and the gospel advances. May the prayer of every sermon preached from this pulpit, right? Right here at Redemption Hill Church. May the prayer be that the words being the, the words would be used by the Holy Spirit to cut every listener to the heart. Through the faithful preaching of the word of God, may the Holy Spirit take the words and cut us to the heart. I mean, do you ever do you ever wonder why I preach from the Bible? And that the gospel is proclaimed every single week here at Redemption Hill Church. Well, if you ever wondered, look at Peter's Pentecost sermon. Because it's the preached word carried along by the Holy Spirit that cuts people to the heart. How Peter preaches this sermon is really instructive. Um, Not at this church, but there are sermons preached without the Bible. There are sermons preached with no mention of Jesus. I, I remember uh, Sharice and I were at seminary, and um, we were visiting churches trying to figure out where we wanted to settle. So this is early on. And we went to a church uh, that was recommended to us, and a guy got up and preached. Never went to the Word of God. Never, never, never mentioned a Bible passage, and um, no mention of the gospel. May that never be here. And here's what I know: this kind of preaching, where there's, where they're not opening the Word of God, it's not a Christ-centered sermon, no gospel. This kind of preaching would have been completely foreign. To Peter, it's gonna, it's completely foreign to Paul's. We're gonna see, completely foreign. They wouldn't even recognize a sermon that didn't dip into the Bible and talk about Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And I'd also say this kind of preaching does not glorify God. After everyone was cut to the heart, a, a humble question is asked, a, a question that is asked when a person is cut to the heart. What shall we do? What shall we do? If all this is true, please tell me, what should I do? Well, here, here's what you should do. Verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, to be saved, you must first repent. Repent. Uh, several Greek words are translated into our English word repent uh, in, in the New Testament. Uh, repent can mean to turn from like a sinful action and to Jesus, right? It's a literal turning around. Like, you're doing this particular thing. It's sin. You know it's sin. You've been convicted of it. You feel it. And then you're saying no, and you make a, a clear turn 
180 degrees, and you go, I'm going to Jesus. Instead of that sin, I'm going to Jesus. One, one way repent can be translated in the New Testament. Repent can uh, refer to regret or emotional upheaval that is caused by sin, right? Um, that's not used as often, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses it. And repent can mean, which applies to this passage, it can mean to change your mind. It, it's getting at um, the faculties of what you believe and know in your head. It means to change your what you think. So if you do not believe in your mind that Jesus is the Son of God, spoken about in the Old Testament, Peter is saying, repent and change your mind and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, spoken about in the Old Testament. Change your mind. And that's why Peter says, look at what I've shown you in the scriptures. Repent and see Jesus. In addition to repenting, God's word says you need to be baptized. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, your sins are forgiven, and testify to the work of God done in your life by being baptized. Uh, let's just point out, it doesn't, this passage doesn't tell us everything in terms of um, the uh, path of salvation, right? He's just going from repent to baptize. Uh, but that is an appropriate step, that's appropriate step in terms of how we get there. Repent and then be baptized. So there's an assumption here that a person has faith in Jesus Christ. And when you have faith in Jesus Christ, baptism is the next step of obedience when a person is saved. So Peter lays out, in part, how a person is to respond when they are what? Cut to the heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look what happened at Pentecost and what we can pray for in this church, right? Verse 41. So those who received his word, right? The word being what he preached from the Old Testament. They were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, right? You know, it's almost like some people say, this is, this is the first megachurch, and I know what they mean by that. And then I say, well, yeah, it didn't last very long, because you know what these 3,000 souls began to do? They went out into the world to tell people about Jesus. They couldn't keep the good news to themselves because they were on mission to share the very message from the Old Testament that had changed their life. They couldn't keep it to themselves. So, oh God, may this happen here at Redemption Hill Church. When the word is preached, cause the Holy Spirit to grip cold, dead hearts and make them alive for the good of the individual who gets saved and for the honor and glory of your name, O oh God. Let's pray.